All right. Am I on here? Change hats a little. Come down on your level off the stage. I'm glad everybody got the memo this morning not to talk about football. I appreciate that. Remind me not to accept the preaching assignment the morning after a late night Steeler playoff game. When all the Redskins fans are in mourning as well. But let's be lifted up by the gospel. Before we get into this morning's passage, I want to spend a little time just putting where we are in the gospel of John into context. Um, Maybe you haven't been around for the whole series on John. Maybe uh, you just lost track of where we are. So we're going to take a look. Uh, John can be looked at like a play, like a good Shakespearean play perhaps. I'm sure he didn't mean it like that. certainly predated Shakespeare by 1,500 years. But I've seen it broken down in a very easy way where you have a prologue. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, talking about Jesus setting us up. And a postlude where John says, if these things are written that you might know and believe. And then there's actually two postludes. He says, uh, if all of the things about Jesus were written down, it would fill entire libraries. But in between, we have three acts. And they are nicely split up for us because each one has seven scenes. And you could go back and, and look through. The first act is the first four chapters. And there we have kind of short action scenes. Jesus' baptisms, calling his disciples, uh, the miracle, first two miracles, uh, conversations with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Then we have the second act, chapters 5 through 12, where the action gets a little longer and there's longer stretches of teaching. And this is where we have Jesus making the I am statements. I am the bread of life. And then he feeds the 5,000 with the fishes and loaves. I am the light of the world. And he gives the blind man sight. I am the resurrection and the life. And he gives Lazarus his life back. Now we are, as you can see, highlighted in Act 3. And Act 3 is the last week of his life. And it takes up the nine chapters out of 21 of the gospel. So a disproportionate amount of time. It's the final seven scenes. And so we can break those down. The upper room takes a few chapters. The garden where Jesus prays his high priestly prayer is what we call that. We spend some time there for a couple chapters. And now we're to where Jesus is on trial. So we're in scene three. And I'm going to break that down even a little bit more because I used to get really confused when I got to the end of Jesus' life. Okay, who who is Jesus answering to? Why do they keep moving him around? Is this guy Jewish? Is this guy Roman? Who's What's happening? So I just broke it down. It's a six-part trial. And in yellow, we have just the parts that are recorded by John. We know that John doesn't necessarily emphasize everything that the other three gospel writers do the other three are called the synoptics and they're very similar to each other john is very different 
And so throughout the Gospels, he emphasized different things. And here's no exception. He doesn't really go into the trial before Caiaphas or the Sanhedrin. And he does barely mention, he doesn't even mention Herod. But we know that that's where Jesus went. So we've got today, number one and four. We've got Jesus on trial before Annas and then Pilate, part one. Next week, we'll hear part two. So with that kind of context and overview, let's dive into the passage here. You'll see we have a little break. Um, I've, I've written it on the back, but if you catch your Bible, even better. Um, we've got a little break because last week's sermon was about Peter's denial that Rich brought us. Um, but we've got two sections here, so we'll, we'll just read straight through 19 through 24 and then 28 through 40. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then we jump, and we we don't really know from John what happens in Caiaphas' trial or before the whole Sanhedrin. But we jump, and then it picks up. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Is there anything I can do? Down. Okay. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. If you've seen the 2002 Oscar winning movie, The Pianist, you know that Adrian Brody stars as a Jewish pianist who has to go into hiding when the Nazis overrun Warsaw. His character is Vladislaw, Vladislaw Spillman. And he sees his parents and his siblings taken away, but he's able to escape. And he hides. And most of the movie is him staying one step ahead. But there's one scene that will stick with you when you see it. He's hiding in an attic. And unexpectedly, he realizes a Nazi officer has found him. And the officer begins to question him and says, Are you a Jew? Yes. What do you do? And he replies, I am, I was a pianist. And the officer unexpectedly says, Play me something. Dusty piano standing right there. So he sits down at the piano and plays Chopin's ballad number one in G minor. And it's just a striking scene because in the middle of this war zone, this ugliness, the inhumanity of what the Nazis have brought and done, there's this just unbelievably beautiful music. Derek Thomas, a PCA pastor in Jackson, Mississippi, sees a parallel between that scene and our passage this morning. Because there is another Jew standing in the midst of man's inhumanity, sheer unadulterated godlessness and hatred. And in this chapter, there shines something of exquisite beauty. Let's see what that is. The first scene we encounter is, is verses 19 through 24. And it's Jesus before Annas. And it, it may have been a little confusing because they kept John calls him the high priest. But we know that the high priest that year was Caiaphas, who was actually Annas's son-in-law. But Annas used to be the high priest, so John still uses the title. And you get the feeling that Annas is still very connected, still has a lot of power, and is particularly interested in this trial. He's hoping to advise the leaders against Jesus. And so he's conducting a bit of a a preliminary investigation. This isn't really a trial per se, but he's trying to get something. Um, I was conducting a preliminary interrogation this morning to find out who forked my lawn with plastic forks on Friday night. Um, Luckily, the transgressors caved quickly. So he goes to Jesus and says, tell me about your teachings. Tell me about your disciples. And he's, he's trying to find some dirt, trying to find something he can use against them. And we know that Jesus doesn't have to incriminate himself. The first century version of pleading the fifth. But he says two things. He says, number one, 
I've spoken openly. I don't have any secret teachings that you need to drag out of me, that you need to cross-examine to get from me. I've spoken my teachings out in the open. I've got nothing to hide. And number two, he says, go find the people who listen to me and bring them as witnesses. Trials are generally conducted by asking the witnesses what they've seen. And so Jesus recommends this course for them. And then a man standing nearby, an officer strikes him. Feels like he's disrespected the high priest. But Jesus knows he's done nothing wrong and doesn't apologize. He says, if you have something that I've done wrong, bring it out in the open. I think this is significant. If you remember back, if you were here for Rich Coffin's sermon last week, he talked about the continued humiliation of Jesus. It's a process that goes throughout his life, starting with his very uh, being formed in Mary and coming to our world, living in poverty. And it's come along as he's rejected by most of Israel and the Israelite leaders. And last week we saw Peter betray Jesus, and that was a huge step in this further humiliation. And now this is the first of the physical humiliation that Jesus is going to experience. And the beatings will get worse leading up to his brutal death on the cross. But here it is the first time that John's mentioned it, that he gets slapped. You know, Jesus' statement, I have spoken openly to the world, I have said nothing in secret, is very significant. And the early church fathers, Augustine and Cyril, saw a lot behind that statement. And it's true that Jesus did speak openly out on the mountainsides, in the temple courts, in houses, on the road, anywhere there was a crowd gathered, he would teach. But there's also an understanding that the listeners didn't necessarily understand what he was saying. Jesus tells them to his disciples, he's speaking, he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is why I speak in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You had to have ears to hear what Jesus was saying. We call that actually the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You may hear the words, but you're not going to fully understand without Him opening them up to you. And so this is this theme that Jesus reveals, but He also conceals. And Augustine talked about the idea that The Old Testament was God's ways concealed a bit. The the people in the Old Testament, the saints, the prophets, the Israelites, understood God and His ways to a point. But they wouldn't truly understand God and His redemption until Jesus came. And so Jesus reveals them. Even Isaiah Think of Isaiah 53, 
probably one of the clearest prophecies of what would happen in Jesus' life. He was despised and rejected by men. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He took on our punishments. All those things. But even Isaiah couldn't have understood fully what he was saying. Because he lived before the time of Jesus. And we live in the time where it's been opened to us. Cyril, one of those church fathers, said, having spoken openly to the world, indicated not only that Jesus has nothing to hide, but that was what was formerly hidden in shadows in the law is now fully revealed in him. And I see a, a further theme here of openness as we think about Christian thought and Christianity, that we are a belief of open. Our Bibles are open. We want you those that are not believers to come and investigate for yourself. We don't have any secrets. We're not trying to suppress what we believe. We're trying to translate it into as many languages as we can so that someone on the other side of the world that's never heard of Jesus or Christianity can open a Bible and have all of the information and all of the text that an elder in this church would have. And I think there is some apologetic value. In other words, when you're speaking to non-Christians, you can use this. That many other religions and forms of religion keep things secret and hold them back until you are in and you've made your way up a few levels into the organization. Then the mysteries are revealed, but otherwise they're concealed. I remember Ravi Zacharias talked about when he discusses the Quran with Muslims, they say, you you couldn't understand the Quran because you don't read it in Arabic. You read a translation. And he says, well, actually, I do read it in Arabic. I understand Arabic and I read it. And then they back off further and say, oh, but... It's not your native tongue, so you couldn't possibly understand it. What do you do with that? You can't go back and have a new native tongue. But there's a lot of examples as you look at world religions and cults and that they will conceal. And this doesn't prove that Christianity is right and these others are wrong. It's simply another thing to point to as we speak to those who are not Christians, not believers. We have our truth set there for you to investigate. Why the secrecy? Show us what you believe and we can evaluate it too. Augustine also makes the point that the wrong witnesses were brought forward for this trial. And actually, there, there aren't really any witnesses in John's account, but we know from the other Gospels that there are. Mark 14, when Jesus is actually before the Sanhedrin, all the Jewish leaders, the court. Now, the chief priests in the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, 
but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. But I wonder if we were able to see a trial of Jesus with witnesses for both sides to determine whether Jesus was really a threat to Israel and Rome, what it would be like. Think of uh, just a modern day court and the prosecuting attorney brings his list of witnesses against Jesus. And so we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other Jewish leaders who are very angry because Jesus interprets the law differently and he's always breaking the Sabbath and, and claiming divine prerogatives. And then maybe they bring the money changers in the temple who Jesus has overturned their tables and whipped them out. And they're angry. And they witness against Jesus. And I'm sure there's others scattered throughout the gospel. The men who own the pigs who Jesus sent off the cliff. They told him to get away. So you would have witnesses against Jesus. But think of the line of people who could testify for Jesus. And we'll leave out the disciples at this point because they're scared and they've already scattered. But as the defense attorney starts to bring his witnesses, maybe Zacchaeus waddles up to this witness stand and and explains how he went from being a greedy cheat to a giving follower. And then maybe following him would be a Roman centurion who says, "I, I never met Jesus, but I sent someone to him to ask him to heal my servant. And from a long way off, Jesus healed him. Thank you. And then up comes a man still bearing the scars of being chained in a graveyard where he would beat himself as he was possessed by a demon. And yet now he gives rational testimony to how Jesus changed him and and sent the demon out of him. And maybe of the ten lepers who are deposed for the trial, one shows up. Because remember, the other nine never came back to thank Jesus. But the one comes. And maybe it's his first time in a courtroom because he's been exiled from society until Jesus cleanses him and heals him of his leprosy. And then maybe near the end, we have Lazarus holding up his grave clothes, saying, I was dead for four days. They had buried me and maybe even forgotten about me. And Jesus came and released me from death. But there is no fair trial, is there? There are no witnesses on Jesus' behalf. And the Jewish leaders have already made up their mind what their judgment of him is. But the great thing is that further on, Jesus reminds them, you know what? There's one witness you need to hear from. For this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Verse 37, he tells Pilate. So now let's skip down to the larger section here. 
and see Jesus brought before Pilate. And this is nothing like a trial here would be. This is simply one man assessing whether or not Jesus is innocent or guilty. No trial by his peers. And Pilate, as the official Roman representative of the area, had a lot of flexibility and leeway in how he judged things and how he ruled. He had to do what would work. At at his heart, he had to be a pragmatist to avoid things blowing up. He knew the Jews were very, very serious about their religion and very zealous for their ways. And so he had to be careful because if a riot happened, he would have to report to his superiors. And he doesn't want that to happen. But you sense that throughout, Pilate has a good sense for justice. He keeps saying, I I don't find any fault in this man. Let's release him. But the Jewish leaders will have none of that. And so eventually he does what he has to do. First thing he asks the Jewish leaders is, what accusation have you brought? But they don't actually answer with an accusation, do they? They say, trust us. If he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. Trust our judgment that he's guilty. Just send him to death, please. That's all we're asking of you. And the Jews probably would have stoned Jesus. They say in here, it's a little confusing, that it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But in Acts, we know within a year or a couple of years, they stoned Stephen. And there's no protest to that. And Paul, Saul, went around killing Christians. But we see that there's a deeper thing working here, that God is moving to prove what Jesus said about his own death correct. Earlier in John 12, 32 through 33, Jesus tells his disciples, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And this is echoed in our passage here in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus couldn't die by stoning at that point. He couldn't die by being stabbed or trampled by a mob or any other method, but to be raised up, to be lifted up on the cross. And that was the Roman execution, method of execution, not the Jewish method. So we see that God is using both the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities to work towards his end. So Pilate goes inside after hearing from the Jewish leaders and he decides to interview this man himself. He wants to know if if he's really a threat. I have to think that Pilate had heard of Jesus. I mean, five days earlier, he had 
been marched into Jerusalem with all these people waving palm branches. It had to create some kind of scene. But Pilate wants to ask him straight out, are you a king? He wants to know, are you a threat to my rule or to Roman rule? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, of all the parts of speech, I'm, you guys, most of you know, I'm taking Greek, struggling through it. And for some reason, I can get verbs and nouns for the most parts and the vocabulary. For some reason, uh, prepositions just don't stick with me. And there's a preposition here that's translated of. My kingdom is not of this world. And the word is ek in Greek. And it makes it sound, this translation of, makes it sound like Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not here, it's out there. It's a heavenly kingdom. But that's not exactly the sense. And they actually, at the end it's translated, my kingdom is not from this world. And that's a better translation, better way to say it. It's, it's not out of this world. My authority is not given to me from this world or of this world. Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is totally separate from this world. He is not renouncing his claim on this earth. For he is the king. And he will rule the new heavens and the new earth. And rules even now. But he is not a king as many of his followers thought he would be. If you know anything about church history, early church history, you know that the Roman Empire persecutes Jesus' followers for the first couple hundred years. The Roman Emperor Nero kills them in awful ways. But by the 300s, Constantine becomes the emperor and has a life-changing conversion to Christianity and makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. Pilate would have never guessed, would he, that this small sect, this small belief that he thinks is pretty insignificant is going to take over the Roman world within a few hundred years. Robert Rayburn, another PCA pastor, said, Pilate had no idea the significance of what Jesus said to him there in the praetorium. He had no idea that the truth of which Jesus spoke would soon be published to the whole world and that vast multitudes of people should follow the very man he put to death. He would have thought utterly ridiculous the very idea that Roman emperors would someday be declaring their allegiance to this same Jesus of Nazareth, would be paying to build churches for his worship out of the imperial treasury, would be calling synods to settle questions concerning the best way to think of godhood and manhood together in the one person, Jesus Christ. If we look a little closer at some of the details of this passage, we're going to see some real symbolism and some real irony. Maybe some areas we just jumped over 
I'll look at three of those. You might have missed in verse 28, as the Jewish leaders bring Jesus from Caiaphas' house to Pilate's headquarters, there's the small note that they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. This is a small note you may have just skipped right past. Let's spend a little time, if you remember what the Passover was. Back in Exodus, when Moses is leading his people out of Egypt, out of their slavery in Egypt, remember God brings the series of plagues. And the last one is that the angel of death, God's angel, will come through and kill every firstborn son in the area. Right? It's judgment on the Egyptians in Pharaoh's house who will not let him go. But the problem is, the Israelites live there too. But God tells them, here's how you avoid this judgment. Take a lamb, kill it, and eat it. Prepare, that will be your meal. But take its blood and smear it over your doorpost. And the angel of death will pass right past that and your firstborn sons will live. Judgment will pass right over you. And it's a feast that they, the Jews continue to celebrate every year. And if you remember, Jesus and his disciples have just eaten that feast at the Last Supper. It's the Passover. And it's a little confusing because it sounds like maybe John has his timelines wrong. That, okay, they've already had the Passover, but the uh, Pharisees don't want to defile themselves. Well, I think that can be resolved easily. It's a, I think John is referring to the larger Passover celebration of, that took a whole week. But, but getting back to Jesus, when he was in that upper room and had this Passover meal with his disciples, the next thing he does is he brings wine, uh, bread and wine. And he gives them a new ritual to celebrate he says this is my body that will be broken eat it this is my blood that will be shed drink it we don't celebrate the Passover anymore as Christians I know Orthodox Jews still do but Christians we don't because the Lord's Supper has replaced the Passover meal, because just as I said, the Old Testament was shadows of God's work. This is the real Passover lamb. Jesus is going to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. And that's why we celebrate communion. And I think there's great irony that the Jewish leaders were so careful not to defile themselves so that they could participate in the old ritual. And yet they were sending the new Passover lamb to his death. Ultimately, they were going to miss out on the new Passover meal and their sins would not be passed over. 
because they've rejected the true Lamb of God. Later on in verse 38, after Jesus has said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice at the end of 37, Pilate says to him, what is truth? And we we don't know exactly what Pilate means. Uh, it's, It's a bit like interpreting a play where there's not a lot of cues as to what the actors are to say. Maybe he was genuinely confused. What is truth? Maybe he was being patronizingly dismissive. What is truth? What do you know about truth, peasant? Maybe he was actually asking Jesus, what is truth? Might be unlikely, but we know that he says that and then he leaves and goes back and talks to the Jewish leaders and the crowd. But what's amazing is that we know that the answer to his question is standing right in front of him. Earlier in John, Jesus has declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And not only did Jesus act and speak in perfect accord with the truth for the 30 30 some years that he lived on the earth. But he was also being fully God, the standard for truth in our world. Pilate says, what is truth? And he doesn't recognize. Because Jesus, again, has concealed himself in this human form. If Jesus had revealed his glory... Pilate would have had no choice but to bow down and worship and recognize the truth. Finally, at the end of the passage, Pilate thinks that he's found a way out of his dilemma. He remembers there's there's a custom that they have. So I'll offer them Jesus or this other guy. And ask them to free one of them. And surely they will free Jesus. Because this other guy is a criminal. And Jesus is harmless. Barabbas is called in different translations a robber, a brigand, which is a fancy word for outlaw, a criminal. It's explained that he was part of a violent insurrection, rebellion against Rome. And what's interesting is Barabbas is not actually his name. We know that uh, Bar meant son of. And so Jesus was Jesus Bar Joseph, son of Joseph. And so we have this sense that uh, this is kind of a last name, Bar Abbas. Maybe that was his father's name. But Abba also means father. So you could literally translate that son of a father, son of the father. And you'll never guess what his first name was unless you've heard a sermon like this before. But in Matthew 27, 16 and 17, some of the early manuscripts actually give him a first name. It's Jesus. Jesus bar Abbas. 
And so what we have literally is a choice between two, Jesus, Son of the Father. One is the son of an earthly father, an outlaw, a thief, a criminal, one who's willing to hurt and kill to save himself. And the other is the son of the heavenly father, a loving, compassionate healer, willing to be killed to save others. The crowd has made its choice. And they shout for Barabbas. I don't know if you've seen uh, the Discovery Channel and and BBC's uh, documentaries, Planet Earth. I got the DVDs for Christmas and haven't gotten to watch too many of them, but we've we've watched a little bit. And they are fascinating. It's uh, just to see, I mean, they've tried to, uh, videotape things that have never been put on video and certain animals and areas of the world where people have never videotaped. And it's just an amazing look at our world. It's beauty and diversity and complexity. And we were watching in the first couple episodes, you see the migration habits of various animals. And you see the tropical weather patterns and, and how it changes and goes to the extremes and how the animals adjust. And, and you see their hunting instincts and their mating rituals and all the variety. And I turned to Kath and I said, wow, I'm so glad that random chance created all of that. I'm literally stunned that somebody could watch that and contemplate that and think that it came together by chance. And God must be so amused by people who try so hard to come up with an alternate explanation for how this world was created. And we're not going to get into a big debate about micro-macro evolution or any of those things. But my point is that we put God on trial. Our world says that they are going to weigh the claims of Jesus and of God and decide based on their fallen reason. They wouldn't obviously identify it as fallen reason, but but our abilities of logic and reason minute and tiny as they are, our limited knowledge and experience, we're going to decide whether he's true or not. And I don't think God is up in heaven fretting, biting his nails, hoping that we'll just get the right evidence and interpret it the right way. think we'll all find out how misguided we are if we think it's up to us whether there's an all-powerful God or not. For one day, we will face our own judgment. Is Jesus on trial? Yes, but humanity is on trial for how we judge Him. 
We'll be called to account for how we lived our lives and whether we believed in Him or not. And Jesus is the witness to the truth that He is the God who created us, the God who redeems us, and the God who lives with us. Will you hear His voice and accept His truth or reject Him and listen to those who condemn Him? You see, God had the same options as the crowd. He could have allowed the guilty to be punished. Barabbas, in their case, you and I are the guilty that God could have punished. We certainly deserve it. Or he could choose to crush his own son, who is totally innocent, so that the guilty could go free. Thank God that he sent Jesus to his death to free us. Father God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for our worship as we draw together as a body of believers, inviting all who would to come and share with us good news. As we open the scriptures, Lord, thank you for their testimony to us. Thank you that you open our minds to them. And thank you for this account that we've read today that you stood on trial and testified to the truth that you're, you are the king of this world. And yet you submitted to a criminal's death to take our place so that we, the guilty, would go free. Lord, may we celebrate that and live our lives in thankfulness. Lord, I would pray for anyone struggling with the gospel, struggling with whether you are real or whether Jesus is your son and equally God and equally man who died for us, that they would read the scriptures, Lord, Give them insight. Give them eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.